Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. On this episode of the Long Thread Podcast, my guest is Linda Courtright, the editor and publisher of Wild Fibers magazine and the author of the new book, The Eye of Fiber, an uncommon story from around the world. I spoke with Linda in October 2020. I'm afraid we had a few technical difficulties at the beginning of the recording, but they're resolved after the first few minutes. Linda, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's very unusual to find you at home in Maine for months at a time, because usually it seems like you're in a different country every month. I am. My passport is gathering dust. and It's true. I've gotten a sneak peek at your book, The Eye of Fiber, which is just about to be released. It is. It's at the printer and, and I'm going to be shipping it out the first week in November. Probably not the best time to be using the postal service, but there you have it. So I think what's nice is that it, it does come at a time when people are perhaps more anxious than ever to be dreaming about places beyond their own backyard. One of the things I notice about the book is that although there are places and fibers that are favorites, like Vicuña in Peru and Mohair in South Africa, I'd never thought about things like sheep's wool in Russia or goats in Oman or caracal sheep in Namibia. How do you find these fiber stories? Well, I think that's sort of been the mission of the magazine from the beginning is to draw attention to those places that we typically don't think of. I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but you know, in 17 years of publishing Wild Fibers, I've actually never been to Australia. Oops, but it's true. And part of that reason is, is because everybody knows that Wild Fibers come from Australia. Now, I have some stories that when I get there, um, hopefully uh, some stories in Tasmania, but my goal is also to try and find those stories that most people aren't aware of. And the book has given me a great platform to highlight that in a version that I think people who aren't fiber fanatics um, might sort of accept it because it's, it's predominantly a photo book. The book's cover features this adorable little goatee kind of giving you the eye. What made you decide to call the book The Eye of Fiber? You know, naming the book... The book was originally titled Fiber with an Eye. And I, I, I'm i okay with the eye of fiber, but I I was voting pretty strongly for fiber with an eye as well. Um, they both ultimately import the same thing. And it is meant as eye in terms of the focus, but also that this is a photography book. So it really is that eye of fiber but then it's also, you can take E-Y-E and actually then just make it the I, the letter I, the I of fiber. And, and I think that my mission all along has been to take what for many, many people is really the anonymity of fiber and put that I into it. So I was really shocked to see that you lead a fiber tour to Antarctica. Do they really have fiber there? Absolutely. Antarctica, for sure. The story of seal wool, which was the cover story of my 15th anniversary issue. And probably no one was more surprised than I to be on vacation celebrating my 60th birthday thinking, oh, I've got two weeks of not working, intentionally not working, only to discover this extraordinary story about the history of seal wool which dates back to the 1790s. Really, I mean, I I come away from virtually every story going, oh my gosh, I had no idea. But the seal wool story is one that was just such a, such a treasure to come across. And I now do a Zoom lecture on it as well. I do a Zoom lecture on the real polar fleece from the Arctic to Antarctica. So I cover it in that lecture. In reading Wild Fibers and following your adventures online, I get the impression that you meet the most extraordinary people and have these fiber experiences all around the world that most people would never even dream of. It's really the gift of my job that I don't think I probably 
portray strongly enough in the verbiage of the magazine because I feel like that's the personal side of the story and and the magazine really should be about the professional aspect, although that's a pretty fluid line between the two, especially when you have the privilege of being the editor and the publisher. Um, I do get I do get the deciding vote. Yet at the same time, I certainly have some, you know, some editorial bars that I'm very sensitive to. I have, and it's been particularly aware, obviously, during the pandemic, to realize every single person I'm in touch with, um, I can't tell you how many people have reached out to me because I'm in America, and they're so exquisitely aware of our infection rate. I get emails, I'm not going to say daily, but certainly weekly, you know, from the Falklands, from Swaziland, from India, from Mongolia, people are like, are you okay? Are you okay? And yes, I think everybody gets that, but mine really come from a global perspective. And in turn, I I, I just got an email this morning from Madagascar, um, an appeal for some support for this village that's so heavily dependent on tourism that they're looking at 200 families that have just not had any income for months on end. So, you know, yes, your original question is about um, the people that I meet and the breadth of that. And yet at a time like this, the intimacy of those relationships takes on a different meaning. And and to be honest with you, an even greater sense of helplessness, not being able to do that much or being able to do very little. What made you decide to write a book after 17 years of publishing Wild Fibers magazine? I would like to tell you that it was this, you know, well thought out plan. In fact, I've been writing a book book for several years. So I decided that I would spend the beginning of the pandemic um, taking a writing course. Always good to have some professional consult with your skills. And, and it was as the result of that course, and, and I actually spoke to the book acquisition editor at Shambhala, And she made it very clear to me that I was looking at a two-year lead time if I was to do a photo book and a memoir-style book would probably be at least a year and a half out. And that was if she accepted the book the next day. You know, I mean, it was was a timeline that, to be honest with you, uh, wasn't compatible with my finances, um, with all the closing of the shows and my ability to lead tours. and. Then I just, you know, I'm one of those people, I walk every day. And when I walk, that's when I would like to think the bulk of my productive thinking takes place, which since I'm not walking now, that may be a bad sign. But having said that, um, I thought, why not do a photo book that would enable people to have that sense of adventure without obviously my being able to travel to those places, but also... And I'm going to just take a minute to tell you the original plan of the book, because the original plan of the book is not what ultimately went to press. I originally wanted to create a book that looked at all the different pasture areas around the world, that you could look at this pasture in southern Russia and look at a pasture in the Himalayas and look at a pasture in Namibia and, and, you know, all these beautiful landscape shots and say, do you realize that these are all pasture lands that support the animals that produce the natural fibers. And then I wanted to look at shepherds and have a shepherd just on shepherds and look at a great Romanian shepherd. And what does a shepherd look like in Afghanistan or a shepherdess? And and I had, it was just, I loved it. I was just so thrilled, you know? And then someone, a book designer said to me, that's actually not how you put a photo book together, Linda. And I, and I was trying to like do that very mature thing where you accept criticism with a very positive, welcoming attitude without whispering under your breath. Well, crap, that wasn't what I wanted to hear. But I could also appreciate the fact that if you, because I had already, I literally, I'd laid out 70 pages that all of a sudden, if you looked at the landscape section and you looked at 10 landscape pictures in a row, it actually sort of got monotonous. It's like, oh, there's a nice picture. Oh, there's, oh, okay, got it. Like, 
And then you'd look at these headshots of shepherds and the same thing. And the most valuable advice I got was, unlike a magazine, where the words drive the stories and the pictures enhance it. In a photo book, the photos have to tell the story and then the text enhances it. So it basically has to tell a story for without anyone ever reading a caption. And I was like, okay, well, so that actually that is not as easy as I as it sounds. It really isn't. And so I had to swing things around and say, how do I want to make this interesting and yet still give people what I think is a valuable takeaway? And so I broke it down by country. And even that, I mean, I've been to 47 countries around the world. And I cannot afford to publish the photo book that would address 47 countries. I'd love to do it, but I can't. (laughs) And that's why the book is written with the idea of this is how natural fibers, predominantly wool. I did not do any plant fibers. I didn't do silk, you know, and I'm going to get pushed back, I know. But but this is how natural fibers have evolved in this country. And have you ever looked at, you know, where it all came from? And even more importantly, the fact that it is so incredibly interconnected. And as I say in the prelude to the book, that's a message. The, the level of our interconnectedness is something that I think really deserves to be underscored right now. And, you know, speaking of interconnectedness, the thread that that brings all of these stories together, besides the fact that they're all wide fi- wild fiber, is your relationship with these fibers and these people. So how did you get started finding these stories that, that nobody would have thought to put together before? And how do you, you know, find the people, meet the fiber? What's, what's your approach to finding these stories? Oh, that's really changed. That's a great question. And my job was a lot more difficult 17 years ago, for sure. My very first foreign story um, came out of an article in the Wall Street Journal, to be perfectly honest. And I think if you're someone who likes to research a lot, just in general, you're going to be aware of it. I can't, you know, for example, Last week, this article in the New York Times appeared about the dog wool on the Coast Salish people, which is an article that was targeted for this issue, this issue that didn't get published, of wild fibers. Now, I have to tell you, my editorial mission and the editorial mission of the New York Times rarely cross over. But I was like, yes, this is a fascinating story. Even the New York Times thinks it's a fascinating story. That being said, once you start to go down the rabbit hole of natural fibers, not from the artisan perspective, but from the producer perspective, you will really get into a pretty small subset. And a lot of my a lot of my stories now are still somewhat word of mouth. But I've just done a lot of research, and that has become easier over the years. I, I'm gonna. I just want to add one more. When I was in Kyrgyzstan in 2016, um, I met a man who actually is a very small producer of natural fibers in limited editions, and Michael is probably respond. He's responsible for my connection in the Falklands for my rabbit connection in China, for my connection in France and, you know, in Southern France and the Alps. He was a buyer, you know, he's a wool buyer. And he loved the fact that I was just as keen about, you know, unusual fibers as he was. So I'm forever grateful to him. And you have always taken a somewhat unusual approach to these fibers in, in that you're sort of looking at them for what they are. Um, as opposed to how do I spin this? How do I breed this? So sort of an appreciation for the people who live in community with these fibers, but without looking at what you do with them. Well, so my own background was as a cashmere farmer. That's what ultimately, you know, um, triggered this, this, you know, incredible change of life in this journey. 
And the reason, Mike, and you're absolutely right, Anne, um, what happens at the end stage, at the knitting stage, the weaving stage, et cetera, that's something that is already very well documented. Truly it is. And my belief when I started Wild Fibers was, my goodness, people, you need to look at all of those people in the animals themselves who are responsible for giving you, giving in quotes, all of this beautiful fiber that provides you with so much joy. You know, shouldn't they be accorded a level of both attention and respect just by, by virtue of their being? And so when I started the magazine, I always said, this, you know, yes, it's going to be about farmers and shepherds and animals, but I want to present it in the with the highest production values possible, because I felt and still do feel that they're worthy of that. You know, one of the things that fiber festivals do is that, and boy, you know, they have just exploded, you know, like fertile rabbits. I don't know how else to describe it, but... I mean, you know, when I was when even when I was going to shows with my goats back in the 1990s, it was like, well, yeah, yeah, there's a show in Vermont. By gosh, I could be there. You know, you had to dig hard. You know, now or not now, but ordinarily, you know, you could just find a festival practically every weekend. And the beauty of that is that it does provide the opportunity for people to connect directly with the producer and oftentimes with the animal. And when I started Wild Fibers, I was trying to do that both on an in, on a national and on an international level. You had a special connection through Kashmir with uh, people in the, in the northern part of India, and you helped create a Kashmir center there. Tell me what that was like to have such a connection with people uh, on, the, on the other side of the world. If I can just take a minute, because I think this is such a wonderful story, and and I think stories like these also then serve to make people believe that things can't happen out of you know seemingly inconsequential events. Um, in 2006, when I was attending a Kashmir conference in Kyrgyzstan, the goal of the conference was to help identify and support small producers, small Kashmir producers around the world, to somehow help them garner more money so that they wouldn't have to sell their fiber to China, which at the time literally, and still does, literally run around the Himalayas or around with suitcases full of cash and go up to a, you know, a nomad and just hand them this cash and say, you know, I'll take your cashmere. And and who doesn't want to say, yes, let's do that. As a result of being at that conference, there were two people there from three people there, excuse me, from India two from the Himalayas, and at that time, up in Ladakh, a man by the name of Dr. Punsak, had just secured the first dehairing machine, which is what you need to dehair cashmere, and installed it at 12,000 feet to create the first owner-operated cashmere cooperative. And I say owner-operated because it was owned by the Changpa nomads. What an incredible idea that you would now have these nomads who historically have always sold their cashmere raw to the Kashmiris. And let's just be really clear that the Kashmiris, the one who actually brought the name Kashmir to the tank, are not the people who raise the animals. It's the, it's the nomadic people, many of them who are considered Changpa nomads. And there was a gentleman at the conference, this young man, full of just smile and teeth, right? Just everything about him said, I just want to be your new best friend. And so I went up to him at the coffee break and I'm embarrassed, but I have to say this. He had, he had said it at the round table, he said, you know, my name is Kanchuk Stupkis and I am a nomad from Ladakh. And I remember like going, you're a nomad? Shazam. <laughs> Oh my gosh! It's it, it, that's an embarrassing thing to say, but it was absolutely what threw my mind. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, "Are you really a nomad?" It smiled and he said, "Yes, I'm real nomad. You come to Ladakh and I will show you." Okay, 
So I didn't say, are you sure? Do you mean it? I said, great. How does August sound? So eight months later, I stepped off a plane in India, in the high Himalayas, which as a Kashmir goat owner is like, you know, it's like it's going to your your child's homeland, right? And I was, it was an experience that, that changed me at all levels. But what changed me is just as much as the landscape was Stupkis the person. Absolutely. And yes, he's a nomad or to be truthful, you know, semi-nomadic. But between spending a week with Stepkis and going around to the villages and meeting the nomads who do raise cashmere goats, it it impressed upon me a story that just never, ever reaches the consumer. You can look at all the pictures you want. And until you have, you know, slept in a tent at 16,000 feet, really, for more than just a night. And seeing people get up just, you know, the sun hasn't even, sun hasn't even come over the edge of the mountains. So it's, it's dark and it's cold. It's August and it is cold. It's so cold. The zipper on your tent is frozen. I have a, one of my friends who comes on my tour. She, she says to me that when she tried to get out, she couldn't do the zipper. So she sat there breathing on the zipper, <laughs> trying and to warm up the zipper. <laughs> and she, you know, just like inch the zipper up along. Well, you know, we only do that for a couple of nights. How is that for a lifetime? And as the story goes, I went back to Ladakh the following year. I had to. It wasn't even a choice. I had to go back. And then since that time, um, with the exception of two years right after, I have been back to Ladakh usually between two and three times a year with the decision to build the center. It made the decision in 2013, and the center opened 18 months later. And the idea was I had to give back to them something that was so intangible that they had given. When I say they had given to me, they had really given to my heart, but also to who I am as a person. And I don't wish to get too too self-disclosing, but we all know when you meet someone or have an experience that you realize is dramatically different than let's say many other experiences. And that has held true for me, certainly um, in that part of the world and in other parts of India. So the center opened in the village with the idea if I could create a vehicle that would allow these women to earn extra money from the cashmere that they raise, that historically they would always just sell raw. They don't spin the cashmere. And they're herders. They don't. They don't. They don't have that level of manual dexterity to spin that fine. Okay, historically, then that would be like the greatest thing. Hopefully, I could do for them. And so, ergo, 2015, August 2015, the Pangong Craft Center opened. That's the story. So, never mind doing doing a book in less than a year. Opening a center on the other side of the world in 18 months. You, you don't let any moss grow on you. <laughs> you don't let the grass grow under your feet. Better that way. Yes. So you mentioned um, seal wool as, you know, it's probably might be the most surprising fiber. And you've mentioned Himalayan cashmere as in a way that it sounds like the one that has most touched your heart. So aside from the, from the seal wool, where would you say is the most surprising place you have found fiber? Afghanistan. Absolutely. I went to Afghanistan in 2013, I think. And the reason I when I was contacted, my, my favorite story, I, I walked into my office one day and my, uh, my assistant said, she said, Linda, George from Afghanistan called this morning. <laughs> I went, what was that you said? She says, right, George from Afghanistan called. He said he will call you back. And I thought... <laughs> Okay, good. And sure enough, George from Afghanistan did call me back. And the story was, is that in 2007, 
I mean, I, and I, I give me some leeway on the dates here. Our government, our U.S. government, decided that they were going to reintroduce sericulture, i.e., you know, growing of silk, back into the community in Mazar-e-Sharif once it was no longer under Taliban rule, as a way of creating income for families who historically had raised money growing opium. And I was so overjoyed at the idea that once again, natural fibers creates a valuable source of income or an alternative source, even more so. And so, but in the usual way, it was, well, how's this going to work? And um, how am I going to write this story? And George says, oh, don't worry. We have lots of government reports you can read. Oh, good. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, there, that's going to have people on the edge of their seats, I'm sure. And, you know, there's certainly a style to my writing and a style to my pictures. And I was just like, of course you can come, you know, don't, don't for a moment think you can't come. And I thought, yes, but for a moment, I do need to think about that. And it took about, well, took a couple of days, although I will tell you, I probably made up my mind much faster than that. And I had to say, Linda, are you really willing to risk your life for your magazine? And I thought, if you're not willing to risk your life for what you believe in, then do you really believe in it? And so George from Afghanistan called back. <laughs> and, and George is, a, is a kind of a, an American sounding name. Is, was George an American? So not only is George American, he actually lived in Colorado, not far from where you lived, but he had been working in Colorado for quite some time. I was more interested to know how George knew about wild fibers. That to me was like, okay, so George, how might you know about wild fibers? And as the story goes, and Afghanistan remains one of the, I desperately tried to go back. Um, I, I had such an incredible time. Loved Afghanistan. Loved Afghanistan in the way that I love India. Absolutely. Um, I tried to go back to do a follow-up story, and I actually met with George when I was in Colorado, in Colorado doing business, can't remember what it was, and I had din dinner with George, and he was no longer working in Afghanistan, and I said, so, and he had been, I'd been in touch, and I said, George, I really want to go back to do um, another story in Herat. Um, what do you think? And he looked at me and he said, well, I'm going to tell you why I'm no longer there. And I said, why? And he said, because one day my driver showed up to take me to the office, which is very, you know, common practice. And he said, and it, it actually wasn't my driver. Um, it was a driver I didn't know that had been sent. He said, I didn't give it my, that much thought, but it was a little unusual. And about 10 minutes into the ride, he started not heading to the office. And he knew he was being kidnapped. And as soon as he pulled up to an intersection, he made a break to get out of the car. The driver got out, started chasing George. And he was able to get away. And he simply said, Linda, if you were my daughter, I would tell you not to go. And so I, at that point, I paid attention. At that point, I paid attention. Um, to get back to your question, Afghanistan, I absolutely love the fact that this is what, you know, one of my soapboxes is that in the U.S., we are so focused on the crap. Yes, thank you, Spinoff. Thank you for all that Long Thread Media does. Absolutely. But from my perspective, People's livelihoods are at stake, producing us so much of what gives us so much pleasure. 
And so when I can take an example like Afghanistan, now, are we using the silk from Afghanistan? No, they're actually using it locally. But just to have that awareness that natural fibers, which were, I'm going to say 90% of the people that use it to knit, weave, spin, et cetera, is the luxury of having both discretionary income and free time. Okay. Not a hundred percent. Absolutely. There are, there are myself included, you know, for this is the main source of our income, but to realize that that is a privilege that we have. And that is a privilege that is actually afforded to very few compared to the big picture. It's interesting that you that that you mentioned that because Linda Ligon published uh, "Embroidering Within Boundaries," a book that was set in Afghanistan, and it's about um, exquisite hand embroidery. But they are not able to get silk, or they have not been able to get silk. So, the idea that there will be there might be silk available for these women to work with because the finished products are so beautiful, and yet they're working with probably you know rayon it, things that they can can get easily. Um, and as somebody who loves natural fiber, I thought, oh, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be using, you know, silk that's sort of worthy of this treatment? We think of when I think of Afghan fiber, I typically think of cashmere. Right. So the big problem. So Afghanistan is the third largest producer of cashmere in the world, just in terms of volume. It's typically a much shorter fiber. It's rarely white. It's typically brown. But the problem is that most or a portion of Afghani cashmere um, actually has anthrax in it. And so for a while, um, Afghanistan was contracting with a processor, I want to say in Belgium, I could be lying. I'll just say it wasn't Greece. It wasn't, you know, it was inside of Belgium or pretty sure it was Belgium. Um, because they were able to treat the fiber to get rid of the anthrax. And then subsequently, that facility closed, and Afghanistan started sending the fiber to China. And I don't want to get into a discussion about how Chinese fiber is processed, because my feeling is unless you are eyeballs on it right at that moment, it's very difficult to, to validate a statement. That being said, um, that was one of the challenges. And in order to um, treat the anthrax chemically, you then wind up degrading some of the fiber even further. So I did see some cashmere goat herds up in the Hindu Kush when I was in Mazari Sharif. And I said to my driver, as I want to do, I'm stop the car, stop the car. And I pointed to these, you know, herd of goats up into the mountains and I was like, those are cashmere goats. And I sort of got this nod of like, yes, they're cashmere. Oh no, but I have to go see them. I have to go see them. And, and they're like, really? I said, yes. And so we drove as far as we could and we got out of the car and I had a private bodyguard and named Ali. And we wound up walking to these up to this herd of cashmere goats and this herder just couldn't figure out what was this American woman doing, you know, wanting to embrace his God. I mean, he was delighted. He was so proud, you know, gosh, we just never appreciate how much someone will take pride. So I'm standing in this hill, you know, holding these cashmere goats. Ali is holding these cashmere goats and he looks at me with this huge smile and he just says, Linda, this is the, best day of my life on my job ever. And the the one wonderful thing about Ali is that um, he had actually been working at the UN compound when it was bombed in 2012 and witnessed horrific loss of his, of his um, fellow workers. And at this point was now working um, where I was staying. I'll just leave it at that. And he's now gotten out of Afghanistan with his family. And we're great friends on Facebook. Uh, it's just like, oh, and something like that gets to come full circle. It just makes me feel so good. So, yeah, cashmere in Afghanistan. There's a lot of it. It's not, they don't have the breeding programs. There's just a lot of reasons why it, it's not of the quality that most of us would prefer. Yeah. So, you know, you had said you were going to go on and on about your book, and you haven't really. So what should I ask you? <laughs> I think one of the things that 
and you know this from the magazine, you know, you go to put together a magazine and you, you have all of, you know, these articles that might have sort of a similar theme. But then when this all comes together, you realize you have a different story. It's the same story, but it's sort of taken on a life of its own. And when I put the book together, and as I, the, the book has a lot of information in terms of numbers that I probably wouldn't ordinarily include in the magazine. But I think because of how I'm looking at it, it's important to look at like, you know, Russia produces five times the amount of wool that the U.S. does, right? But it actually produces less wool than Morocco. Like, who would have thought that, right? How crazy is that? That when you look at the the book and it says an uncommon, you know, the eye of fiber, an uncommon story from around the world, it looks at those unusual paths that natural fibers have taken. And, you know, in Mongolia, as the subheading for the chapter on Mongolia says, you know, Mongolia, um, where everyone names their camel Kawasaki. And that's because after after while Mongolia was under Russian control and they introduced the motorcycle, they're like, yeah, you got these camels. Guess what? We have these great motorcycles. Put two gallons of gas in the tank. You're good for a week. Don't have to. That's all you have to feed it. And so who would think that the loss of natural fibers or the loss of camel hair to be specific would be because of a motorcycle, right? It's understanding those little dips and curves beyond just the fact that we all know, you know, war is great for wool because of clothing soldiers, but to look at it from a, you know, some of the other ways that it's been affected as well. So that was one of the subtitles that struck my eye. The other one is, is you know, back to Romania, if the fourth dog walks into the forest, does anyone notice? Can you tell me about that story? So Romania, um, just a few years back, and, the, and again, this is so political, oh, it's incredibly political. Um, Romania historically has done the transhumance, which is the, I'll say, an annual migration from shepherd from pasture to pasture, although sometimes it can happen you know, more than annually. But it's obviously just moving your livestock to fresh pasture. And the, um, the Carpathian Mountains are home to the largest brown bear population in the world. And every shepherd understands, I don't care where you are in the world, every shepherd understands that in order to keep the law of nature, all right, so you got to feed everything. And that means sometimes the wolves get some, sometimes the bears get some, but it needs to be a system of checks and balance. And so the way the Romanians historically have maintained that system of check and balance is the use of livestock guardian dogs, which have been used in centuries throughout the world. Well, a few years back, there was a, it actually wasn't a law, it was a, uh, um, a limitation, for want of a better word, was introduced by parliament that said, yeah, those livestock guardian dogs, they're a problem. And the reason they're a problem is because we think they might bite the local people as you travel through the village. And then once you get up into the mountains, which is where you really need them to keep the bears away, because Romania has those great big spikes that they go, that they um, impale from the opposite side of the barn door to keep the bears out. The government said, you can't have more than three dogs to protect your herd in the forest, in the mountains, which is crazy because this is when you want to have your highest, you know, dog to sheep ratio, which historically you would have always just traveled with all of the dogs, right? And the reason was because many members of parliament are hunters and the hunters go to the mountains for the weekend where they can shoot deer, they can shoot wild boar. And it was like, oh, you know, those damn dogs, they're scaring away all of our quarry. 
So while the shepherds need those dogs to keep their sheep alive, which in turn keep the shepherds alive, the government is saying, yeah, no, I can't enjoy my weekend of hunting. And that, and I'm. this is not a statement against hunting by any stretch of the imagination, but it is absolutely about the fact that you are threatening a person's livelihood unnecessarily. And so ultimately, I'm not going to tell you how to end. That's why you should buy the book. But to me, that's a, just an incredible, yet another lesson in how valuable natural fibers are in a way that most people would never know. So, and, and you know, through your, your magazine and now your book and your tours, you are shining a light on these fiber animals and producers that many of us would never come across and just sort of making that connection that those of us who are, who love fiber can enjoy your explorations. That's the goal. (laughs) I really, you know, years ago, I remember I was at, I was at Convergence, you know, the annual or biannual, um, weaving conference and I remember someone came up to my booth and she was looking at a magazine and she picked it up and she was flipping through the pages and sort of let's just say not in an all welcoming way but sort of in a dismissive way she said well what's this about and I said very excited I said you know well wild fibers this looks at you know the animals and the people who are responsible for providing you know, us with all the things that you use, you know, you use to to weave and make products that you give give you pleasure and then pleasure to people that you in turn give them to. And she goes, oh, well, I don't care about that. And, you know, snapped the magazine closed and put it back down on the table. Oh, my gosh, I had such a visceral response. <laughs> picked up the magazine and I literally chased her down the aisle and I handed it to her and I said, this is my gift from me to you. I said, maybe you do care about it. I am aware that when I'm at a festival and I get it, I totally get it. The people, people are, you know, you're so seduced by those colors. I'm seduced by those colors. You know, a festival is like going into a bookstore You know, they always say that part of the pleasure of reading a book is when you just see it by the cover and you imagine yourself in the enjoyment of reading the book at that moment. When you walk into a festival, you're doing the exact same thing. Every sweater, every scarf, every skein of yarn, you are imagining the joy you're going to experience as you're knitting or weaving that project. I get that. I, I, you know, I'm a spinner and knitter myself. I totally understand. So to grab someone from that focus of, you know, color induced tactile euphoria and say, how would you like to read this afternoon? It's a pretty difficult, pretty uphill battle. I get it. But that's why the, the pleasure of having this book in your hot little hands at home or the magazine for all these years, but the ability to sort of visit these places whenever you like. Now, are you one of those people who's had to, had to get extra pages sewn into your passport? I did. Yeah, and now they don't. I, and I just got a new passport in 2017, and I did. I had a I had an uber thick passport that I would show off at any available opportunity. Now they don't add any more pages. Um, they they just reissue the passport. So, yeah, I do have my my old passports and they're for, you know what, to be honest, when I'm traveling with someone, I'll pull it out and, you know, I'll, I'll, I used to pass it. And even now the current one's pretty good. It's not great, but it's pretty good. And they'll be like, you know, like they'll look through and they go, really, have you been here? And I go, well, it's in my passport. Yes. It's it's just amazing. I mean, you, I, I envy you the, the ex- these experiences and yet the effort that it takes, the the logistical stamina to, to go and visit all of these places, is, it's just amazing. I Thank you for saying that, but I'm not going to take credit where it's not due. And to be honest, it is once you understand the drill, it's, it's really sort of the same thing, you know, just over and over and over again. And I... 
I will say this, and I don't often confess this, but I'm going to say part of the challenge of doing as much travel as I have done is that you do risk being a little jaded. You really do need a pretty big oh wow experience every now and then to make you fall in love with it, if I can say that. And so part of what pushes me now to go even more unusual places is in part to just stretch my own and to make force me to stretch my talents too. I don't get to interview people who speak in English. Rarely, rarely am I talking like you and I are talking like, this is great. You speak English. Isn't this fun? <laughs> I try. <laughs> you know, I, well, I mean, I'm used to asking questions through a translator. I'd have to be sensitive. Can I even ask that question? I've got to ask it in such a way that the translator understands the language of farming, etc. I have to be, you know, have a measure of cultural sensitivity that I guarantee you I'll never have. I had a conversation. I was in Oman. I just digress for a second because this was just a, do you have a second to? Of course. Oh, yeah. So I was in Oman and again, doing an amazing, I mean, whoever thinks of natural fibers and Oman and whoever thinks of Oman, to be honest. And I was um, in the Dofar in January and A, I was completely unprepared for how cold the desert is in January. I just didn't, never quite got that memo that the desert is not always hot. Desert is actually really cold in January at night. And I was with this camel herder, uh, who's actually, he's in the book, and he did speak English, which was great. But, so I wasn't relying on it. But at the same time, you get into Middle Eastern culture, you get into women in Middle Eastern culture, women traveling alone in Middle Eastern culture. And now all of a sudden, you've got to be pretty sensitive. And so there's a fairly well-known rule that many people in that part of the world, um, particularly Muslims, really don't want to hear your cute stories about your dog, Fluffy. You know, dogs are not <laughs> pets. Dogs are, you know, considered. And again, I want to say this is not, I'm making a broad statement. There are plenty of exceptions. So please know I'm, I'm saying this with great respect and sensitivity. And so as the conversation began, as I'm sitting around the campfire at night, um, gnawing on burnt camel ribs, which we had bought that day at the market. And this was actually, the, this was the day I became a vegetarian. Absolutely true story. And and my my friend Bakit says to me, and he's very, this very handsome camel herder, I have to tell you. And he said, so, um, where is your husband? And I'm like, you know, I have been wondering the exact same thing, right? And and he knew that, had enough English that I knew I could sort of, you know, just make a play on words, a little joke on that. And well, so it turned out that then ultimately led to, he could resolve that situation for me that, you know, he, you know, could have a third wife. He could accommodate me in Salala. It'd be no problem. And I'm like, all right, Linda, well, you were, you know, you deserve that. You stepped in it with both feet. So I suggest you now step out. Maybe you jump out. So I do the typical, you know, nervous female titter. Oh, this is so funny. Oh dear. Let's change the subject. So I explained to him, you know, that I'm always traveling alone. And actually, it's a good thing that I'm single because I travel so much. And and I say this, Justin, and I said, you know, but I do have, you know, two dogs. So that's, you know, some level. And I figure, all right, I've stated it. I haven't gone on about it. That'll be fine. And he looks at me and he says, so. I must ask a question. I said, certainly, what is it? And he went on to say that he had been in Germany recently, like in the last year or two, for, for an operation. Not uncommon for them to, you know, go up to Europe. And when he was recovering at his hotel for a few days, 
there was a park across the street. And apparently at this park, there were all these women out walking their dog. Sounds pretty normal in my book. And he says to me, so I asked the hotel manager, why are so many women walking their dog in the park? And the hotel manager said, well, sometimes women prefer the dog over the man. (laughs) Is this true? And I think, (laughs) oh, gosh, Linda, you need to just and. And to make things worse, I absolutely, I happen to have two Afghan hounds. <laughs> and I realize to if I want to secure my demise, all I have to do at that moment is tell this Omani shepherd that I sleep with two Afghans every night. And <laughs> I'll be walking back to the airport, right? You know? But it was such, but I, and I, and I bring this this up because it was such a great illustration of how something so seemingly innocuous to so many people, women walking dogs in the park. And that left this man scratching his head like, I just don't get it. And I took that as an opportunity to explain to him in a way Because I think you should never refuse the opportunity or ignore the opportunity to educate, you know. And I said, you know, Bakit, in America, we are very focused on our jobs, for sure. Americans are known for working long, hard hours. We will go anywhere in the country. Many, many families are, you know, displaced. We see each other. A family might get together once a year, twice a year. I mean, that is a fairly common scenario. And I said, as a result, because we're humans, we all need companionship. We all need affection. I said, you do see a lot of people who own an an animal, a dog or a cat, because of that human need, you know, for togetherness. And I said, it really is a function of both our society and, and the human condition. And I could see him processing it. And he says to me, he goes, so do you really like your dogs? And once again, I'm saying, don't tell him you sleep with them. Don't tell him you sleep with them. And I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, I do. And, and it was, it's those exquisite moments that in the magazine, sometimes I will, sometimes I will cover them. But I will tell you, this is why I still want, and I'm writing another book. Because that other book is really about all of those stories that never went into print that have been such great life lessons for me. Well, Linda, it's just been such a pleasure to visit with you. And tell people how they can get hands on the Eye of Fiber. Hands on the Eye of Fiber? Just go to wildfibersmagazine.com. And if you can even remember to do forward slash books at the end. It'll take you right to that page. But if you just even remember wildfibersmagazine.com, you'll see the link right there. I have to tell you that I, I looked through the book before we spoke, and now I'm even more excited to, to dive in and see more about the see more of the photos and, and learn more about these folks. So it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. And uh, best wishes. I hope you I hope you get out on the road again soon. Thank you. I have so enjoyed speaking with you, and we never get to do this enough. Thank you for asking me. Be well. You too. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.